Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us Professor Lawrence Jordan. Professor Jordan is Professor of History at Fairfield University and at Fordham University. And today we're discussing his newest book, The Rough Rider and the Professor, published by Pegasus Books. Welcome, Professor Jordan. Hi, Charles. Good to be with you. Professor, um, why did you write this book? <laughs> well, I am... Um... I'd always wanted to write a commercial book. I, I see myself more as a, a, a storyteller who really enjoys the, the the great dramas and the great characters of history. And I had written a book several years earlier, which was an academic book, which examined president uh, the influence of three conservative journals on the foreign policy views of President Reagan, but. During COVID, when all of us were locked down, I found myself sitting around with not a whole lot to do and thought, well, what could I come up with that might be a really interesting and compelling idea that could be um, sold to a commercial press? And as one who had always enjoyed writing about friendships and mentorships and camaraderie among men, I found myself thinking about great friendships among presidents. And one of the things that I had noticed in my time of reading various biographies of Theodore Roosevelt was was how much Henry Cabot Lodge seemed to appear in these narratives, but he was always on the periphery. He was never kind of at the center of anything, but he was always at these great events that involved Roosevelt. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And and then I stumbled upon a, a book called The President Makers, which had been written in 19... 19- 44, which I had found when I was looking through the endnotes of Edmund Morris's first book, The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And the author of The President Makers had actually argued that Henry Cabot Lodge was responsible for propelling much of the professional success that Roosevelt had 
that allowed him to become president far quicker than he otherwise would have. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting narrative idea. And over time, as I researched it, I thought it was really compelling. And I found these incredible uh, correspondence between Roosevelt and, and Lodge over the course of 35 years and 2,500 letters where they had imparted so much to one another. And I thought, well, this is definitely a great drama. And if you combine that with their personalities, the Gilded Age, the marvelous women that they were married to, and all of the um, uh, political and economic similarities that, that seem so uh, relevant to our own time, I thought it might be a good idea for a book. And that's how the book came to fruition. Do you agree, I'm sorry, uh, about the book, that's the Matthew Josephson book? Yeah. Uh, very good. Uh, do you agree with Richard Hofstadler that Roosevelt's mind did not cut very deep? I don't actually think that's the case, and I think that if you look at over the course of Roosevelt's career, particularly in terms of the uh, voluminous amounts of writing that he did, and how books um, like The Winning of the West are, are con still considered uh, very much of a, of a classic today. I, I don't think uh, that's right. Roosevelt um, had an extraordinary mind. I think he was one of the great intellectuals to occupy the presidency. Just in his sheer breadth of knowledge um, and interests and, and all of the opinions that he had and all of the uh, areas of, of, of expertise that he seemed to possess, I don't think that that's really true at all. How important to Roosevelt's views and, in fact, life was uh, the fact that his beloved father had to purchase substitutes in the Civil War? I think that was enormously important, and I think it was something that, that really festered within him uh, for much of his life and why his belief that displaying uh, courage on the battlefield was the only true way of a man showing his, uh, showing his mettle or, or his character. Roosevelt actually wrote in his autobiography where he never mentions the fact that his father had hired substitutes. He does say in regards to his own service in the Spanish-American War, he said, well, I didn't have to hire a a substitute uh, to, to display my courage or, or bravery. The Civil War was enormously important uh, for both Roosevelt and Lodge. Um, both men were, were quite young when the conflict uh, was occurring, but they both, uh, it, it resonated with both of them. And I think both of them came away with this incredible reverence for war and bravery and courage. And it really also translated in so many of the books that they read as they were growing up, be it by people like Sir Walter Scott or Joseph Conrad or any of these other uh, incredible uh, writers of, of great adventure tales. So I think that, that, that the war was very, very important for both of them. Lodge's father didn't serve in the war either, um, he didn't hire uh, anyone to serve in his stead, but he very much would have liked to have done that. But he had had a, a riding accident, which had severely damaged his knee, and he was unable to serve on the uh, on the battlefield. 
Who was a greater influence on Henry Cabot Lodge? Henry Adams or his uh, brother in Lodge's brother in law, Brooke Adams? Oh, goodness. Henry Adams by, by far. Henry Adams was was responsible for so much of, of, of what Lodge would accomplish. He, he opened up Lodge's world in terms of Republican politics. He encouraged him to pursue uh, degrees in history and law. He introduced him to all of the uh, many of the prominent academics and politicians of the day. Uh, he really tried to serve in a way as a surrogate father, I think, uh, to Henry Cabot Lodge, because Lodge had lost his father at such a formative uh, moment uh, in his life. I think he lost his father when he was about 11 years old. And Lodge really was at loose ends um, during his early years. He he married uh, the wonderful uh, Nanny Lodge. Uh, he had a great deal of money. He wasn't it wasn't necessary for him to to work. And and I think Henry Adams really imbued him with the importance of ideas, the importance of the life of the mind, and, and then introduced him to politics, which Lodge just became obsessed and fascinated uh, with. I'm sure I wonder if Henry Adams regretted introducing Lodge to politics, because ultimately that led to the division, the kind of the dissolve of slow dissolve of their a relationship where Henry Cabot Lodge really came, where I'm sorry, Henry Adams came to really loathe Henry Cabot Lodge, viewing him as an opportunist and a politician and a man who was obsessed with, with power. Lodge never uh, lost his love for for Henry Adams. He had enormous respect for him. Uh, he really appreciated everything uh, Henry Adams had done for him, even though he didn't always appreciate uh, Henry Adams' acidic. Uh, and pessimistic views of politics and uh, and of Lodge uh, himself. What propelled these two upper-class gentlemen to Gilded Age politics? I think it's 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 a really interesting question, and I and I think that if you look at both men who grew up in the uh, elite uh, Gilded worlds of of Boston and New York and affluence. And privilege, where neither one really had to uh, go out of their way to do anything, and could have very easily have led a life of comfort and complacency. I think both men really did uh, believe in uh, this idea of of destiny, this idea that the United States was destined to be a great nation, that. Uh, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence uh, were not just documents on parchment, but indeed divine documents that had actually been uh, almost created in, in, in almost a divine sort of way. And I think both men had grown up uh, based on their influence of their fathers in the philosophy of noblesse oblige, where much is, is, is indeed given, but also much is expected. I think both men were superb uh, intellects. Uh, they believed uh, that each they each had the ability uh, to accomplish something significant. They wanted to do something that stood the test of time. They wanted to serve their fellow man. They wanted to be uh, involved in the events 
of their day. And I think uh, they both displayed great courage in going outside their comfort zone into the world of, of politics, which was not something that men of their class were encouraged to do. In fact, politics was looked down upon uh, by the, uh, the Brahmin and, and Knickerbocker uh, classes, of which both Roosevelt and Lodge were, were part of. But I really do believe that both Lodge and Roosevelt followed this idea of what Roosevelt would come to define as a strenuous life, where both men went outside their comfort zones. Uh, they did things that they were not necessarily comfortable doing. Uh, and uh, it was it was challenging for for both of them, especially uh, for Henry Cabot Lodge. But Henry Cabot Lodge had a great confidence in in himself, in his family lineage, and and his belief that the um, the his ancestor George Cabot was really somebody that that Lodge needed to follow. And both men came to believe that they should be sitting at the head table of of not only uh, their individual states, but indeed their nation. Why did Cabot Lodge and Roosevelt violate their own principles and support Blaine in the 1884 presidential race? Well, you know, uh, the one thing that we, we uh, that, that hasn't been uh, lost and continues today is, is opportunism uh, in politics. And, and both men uh, indeed had that. Uh, I think uh, if you look at um, the moment in 1884 where both were very conflicted about whether or not to support James Blaine. Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge certainly concluded rather quickly that if he was going to obtain a position within the political arena, uh, he needed to support the standard bearer of the Republican Party. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, it was tough for him to support uh, Blaine, indeed, he really uh, had very little uh, participation in the 1884 race, but he had learned uh, from Lodge early on that if one wanted to be relevant uh, in either political party, uh, one needed uh, to support uh, the, that, those, the, that, those, uh, those candidates. You couldn't go off and uh, join a third party, as Roosevelt ultimately did, uh, without the uh, possibility that you could uh, end up politically irrelevant. And that was something Lodge had instructed Roosevelt very, very early on. He said, you know, if you don't uh, stay the course, stay within the Republican Party and support those uh, who needed uh, support, uh, your career is basically going to go nowhere. And I think both Lodge and Roosevelt realized that. They both wanted to uh, be significant players in politics, and therefore they had to make choices that turned their stomach. And there was nothing more that turned their stomach than supporting James Blaine, a man who neither Roosevelt nor Lodge believed deserved uh, the presidency. Uh, both men still believed in those old ideas of of virtue that was so important uh, to the founding generation and honesty and integrity. Uh, but in the end, uh, they had no choice. And granted, it hurt Lodge in the end and Roosevelt, uh, too. But uh, in the end, it turned out uh, OK for them. They were able to weather the storm based on the fact that each was there for one another. Uh, and that was really where that friendship uh, developed. 
How do they cope with the ostracism from their own social circles about their decision? Well, for Lodge, it was very, very difficult. And you really see that vindictiveness and that, uh, and that anger and that uh, uh, arrogance uh, that Henry Cabot Lodge uh, possessed. The fact that he chose to support James Blaine, uh, this resonated like a, a thunderclap uh, throughout uh, Boston and Brahmin society. Uh, the Brahmins or those that uh, knew Henry Cabot Lodge, who indeed had grown up with Henry Cabot Lodge, were very much on the liberal Republican. And, and the fact that Lodge chose to go against that, where he chose to pursue uh, politics over principle, was something that uh, those on Beacon Hill never let him forget. And the fact that he was really ostracized uh, from uh, Boston society uh, was something that he never forgot. Uh, it really tore him up. Uh, you can read the letters uh, uh, in my book about that. Um, he, uh, it's ironic that the only fellow who stood by him during this period was Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a very close friend of Henry Cabot Lodge's uh, and one that Lodge would repay with a seat on the Supreme Court during Roosevelt's presidency. And Roosevelt and Lodge was a devoted friend. If you were supportive of him and stood with him, he never forgot it. But if you crossed him, um, you know, God help you, because he was a man with a long memory, a vindictive streak, and a man who became very powerful. So um, you had to be wary uh, if you were going to uh, cross Senator Lodge uh, at any point during his uh, lifetime. Why did Cabot Lodge introduce into the House of Representatives the so-called force bill? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It wasn't that he had some sort of incredible empathy towards African-Americans. I was actually talking about this last night. Um, Lodge was his Lodge's whole career was based on keeping the Republican Party in a majority in Congress and making it as successful as he possibly could. The force bill was more of a strategic uh, idea uh, to uh, open up uh, the solid Democratic South to uh, Republican, uh, Republican uh, success. Um, the idea that essentially if there was voter fraud that was noticed of, or anything in regards to the African-American vote, uh, one uh, investigation was held, a legal investigation and, and congressional oversight was, uh, was pursued. But ultimately, this idea was not about the idea that African-Americans were being denied the right to vote. It was more about the idea to give the Republican Party an opportunity to succeed uh, in the South. Both Roosevelt and Lodge had a low opinion of the intellect of African-Americans. They both believed that uh, the African-Americans should be citizens, uh, that they were indispensable uh, to the Republican Party, primarily as a demographic, of course, in that uh, the Democrats were so associated with slavery and the majority of African-Americans went over to the Republican Party. Uh, but uh, neither man had a particular uh, high opinion of African-Americans uh, as individuals, even though uh, Theodore Roosevelt, to his credit, 
uh, did appoint uh, more African-Americans to government positions than any president uh, up to that time. But the force bill was more of a strategic uh, tool than a uh, a sort of uh, a, a, a way of solving the uh, the uh, the voting rights crisis that afflicted uh, so many African Americans during that time. Why did Cabot Lodge uh, favor immigration restrictions, and what did Roosevelt think of the idea? Well, Lodge, for some reason, was very caught up in the idea of ethnicity, the idea of race. He believed one's ethnicity, uh, one's race, dictated. Uh, where you stood and indeed how far you would rise uh, in life. Lodge based so much of uh, this argument, this ethnicity idea on how he uh, felt those immigrants from those Eastern European uh, countries would uh, succeed uh, in uh, the United States. He believed that the only folks who could really succeed in, uh, in the United States were those who had experienced uh, similar situations in other countries. If you had come from a nation that had a republic or a parliamentary system, uh, and uh, of course, if you were white, uh, chances are you would succeed okay. But if you came from a, a society that you, you more or less were English, was not a language that was spoken very frequently, uh, where government uh, either was very primitive or didn't exist at all, uh, you were essentially going to fail in the United States, and you were going to be a burden on the rest of the uh, American family. Roosevelt had a bit of a different point of view as he did with race. He wasn't as ideologically rigid on race and ethnicity as Lodge was. Roosevelt was a great believer in the idea that one could succeed based on the environment uh, that, they, that, that they lived in. Uh, it, it's a very, it was a very interesting idea, and if you think about Roosevelt's views on ethnicity, particularly in his, the speech that he gave on uh, Americanism, where he argued that the only way to become a true American was to completely subvert uh, one's ethnic, cult, ethnic culture and focus fully on absorbing uh, English, um, Judeo-Christian uh, ideas, uh, the politics of, uh, of the way the United States was structured and completely subvert any sort of uh, ethnic identity that you possessed before you came to the United States. So it was sort of, sort of two different views in terms of, of how one could succeed uh, in terms of one's ethnicity. Lodge believed you really couldn't succeed uh, unless you were a specific type of, of, especially possessed a specific type of ethnicity. Roosevelt believed you could succeed, but you had to completely dismiss uh, any of that ethnic identity uh, that you had possessed previously to coming to the United States. Roosevelt adhering to what he later described as 100% Americanism. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, what did uh, Lodge initially think of Roosevelt's decision to quit office as Assistant Secretary of the Navy 
and uh, form the Rough Riders to uh, fight in Cuba? He didn't think much of it, um, and, and neither did anybody else. Um, Henry Adams actually uh, thought Roosevelt was crazy. Uh, so did uh, several other uh, individuals, and Lodge primarily was concerned about Roosevelt physically. Uh, he knew that Roosevelt was a man of extraordinary energy, extraordinary vitality, and he was worried that Roosevelt was going to put himself um, uh, in harm's way for no uh, real reason other than to display uh, his bravery and his confidence on the battlefield. Lodge respected uh, what Roosevelt was doing. Um, Lodge's uh, uh, son, uh, George Cabot uh, Bay Lodge, was uh, enlisting as well as was uh, Lodge's son-in-law. And, and Lodge, of course, was worried about the health and safety of all three uh, men. But because of the fact that Lodge viewed um, service, uh, military service, as one of the highest callings uh, one could have, uh, he went along with it and supported uh, his uh, friend and relatives in any way he could, but he certainly uh, would have preferred it, I think, if, if, if Roosevelt had not uh, gone abroad. Why did Cabot Lodge and Roosevelt support American expansionism? Oh, well, I think, as I said, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, both men believed that the United States had a, had a rendezvous with destiny uh, to pull a phrase from Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, both men believed that the United States needed, had the capacity to be a great nation, uh, should be the uh, leader uh, in the world. Uh, both men understood history, and, and it was really the uh, book by uh, Admiral Mahan on, uh, on uh, the history of, 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 of the Navy and the importance of the Navy uh, that really uh, confirmed uh, Lodge and Roosevelt's view that in order for the United States to uh, become a great nation, uh, Navy was necessary. Uh, they needed to expand. Uh, the nation needed to expand abroad. Uh, they both were very familiar with George Washington's farewell address where he talked about the importance of expansion, and obviously Washington was talking about the expansion of the West, but of course the West was closed by this time, and both Lodge and Roosevelt believed that the nation needed to expand abroad. Uh, they were constantly worried that uh, one European nation or another could potentially take advantage of, of the United States militarily. Uh, they understood how all of these great European empires had become such extraordinary successes with uh, navies and colonies that allowed all of these nations to expand economically, and they believed the United States should do the same if it was going to occupy a similar uh, position in the world. How did Cabot Lodge persuade Roosevelt to become McKinley's vice president? Yeah, well, that wasn't an easy uh, an easy process. Lodge was, as 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 Roosevelt said of of Lodge. He's a, he's a great friend, but when he has his mind made up about something, it's difficult. It's difficult to dissuade him. And Lodge had always believed, for whatever reason, going back to their first meeting, uh, the first meeting with Roosevelt in 1884, that Roosevelt had the capacity to achieve something significant, something unique. 
in American history. He believed he had the ability uh, to achieve a, a great role uh, in American history, which to Lodge meant the presidency of the United States. And as uh, Roosevelt was making his way up the political ladder, Lodge was going out of his way to make sure that Roosevelt remained in the political arena. And after um, Roosevelt became uh, governor uh, and things uh, were going very, very poorly uh, with the New York political machine, and Roosevelt came to the realization that he was not going to get uh, the nomination for a second term, he began thinking more seriously about the idea of becoming uh, William McKinley's vice president. Lodge had voiced this uh, several years earlier, but at the time, uh, the vice presidency, uh, as John Nance Garner called it, was, was basically nothing but a warm bucket of spit, uh, where there was literally nothing uh, for the vice president to do other than preside over the Senate and check occasionally on the health of the president. And that was completely counter to Roosevelt's M.O. Roosevelt was a man who was used to doing things, used to making big decisions, used to uh, – and a man who enjoyed uh, using uh, political power. And the vice president had none of these things. And what was concerning, particularly uh, for Edith Roosevelt, was not only the fact that the financial reward that the uh, vice presidency had was minimal to – to nothing, but also psychologically, she was concerned that Roosevelt, who was a man who just had, as I've said before, this incredible energy, would be stymied in this role and could potentially become uh, extremely depressed, argumentative, uh, difficult to be around. And she didn't really want any of that uh, to happen. But over time, as Roosevelt looked to his right and looked to his left and found every other political position closed to him, he realized that it was either uh, take the vice presidency or essentially become politically irrelevant for the next uh, four years. And Roosevelt chose to take the vice presidency. And as Lodge said to him at the time he uh, accepted it in, in uh, 1900, Lodge said, no one uh, can tell what will happen over the next four years. And boy, he certainly was right, because in 1901, Roosevelt found himself uh, at the pinnacle of, uh, of political life. How did the relationship between the two men change once Roosevelt became president in 1901? Well, it's really interesting, because early on, you could really say from 1884 up until that moment in 1901 when uh, Roosevelt does become president, uh, Lodge had played the role in the relationship of the senior man. He was seven years older uh, to begin with. Uh, he had much more of a, a significant uh, career and or pedigree uh, than Theodore Roosevelt had. Um, Lodge was a, a successful historian. He was a successful academic. He had been in the Senate. Uh, for some time before Roosevelt became vice president. But when Roosevelt does become, I'm sorry, before it became president, but when Roosevelt does become president, uh, things begin to shift. And Roosevelt now realizes that he has the power 
that he had craved for so long, and he could basically go his own way. Theodore Roosevelt was always more comfortable within the progressive uh, confines of the Republican Party. Uh, he was a man who believed in the influence and the power of government uh, to achieve uh, great uh, things for the nation. He uh, was a man who was concerned about the pervasive growth and corruption of big business. Uh, he was determined to crack down uh, on that. He was determined to solve the problems of income equality uh, that existed in the United States. Lodge was a politically conservative fellow. He believed in the Constitution as written. He would be what we would call today an originalist. Uh, he was also someone who did not like the idea of, uh, of extreme government encroachment on the individual. He believed in the power of the private sector uh, to get things done. And um, as he saw uh, Roosevelt drifting away from him politically, he was more concerned about uh, what was going to happen to the Republican Party and what the reaction was going to be of those who were within it and those who were responsible for uh, putting large amounts of money in its coffers as to Roosevelt's uh, policies. Lodge um, spent much of the presidency as sort of the ambassador to the conservative uh, members of the GOP, constantly running uh, between Wall Street in New York and State Street in Boston, uh, telling people, you know, no, no, watch what Roosevelt does, not necessarily what he says. I also think that there was some irritation on the part of Roosevelt towards Henry Cabot Lodge in terms of the way their relationship had been portrayed early on. There had been gossip going around Washington when Roosevelt and Lodge were talked about. It was always the quote-unquote firm of Lodge and Roosevelt was what was always raised. Um, many people believed uh, that, that Lodge was some sort of great Svengali uh, when it came to Theodore Roosevelt, that he uh, had some kind of control over Roosevelt, was the man sitting behind the throne, so to speak, making the decisions. And there were a couple of, of examples that kind of brought this to light, one of which was early on in Roosevelt's presidency, um, a journalist came to Roosevelt and said, well, hey, Mr. President, I want to congratulate you on on uh, becoming president. Obviously, it's unfortunate about the death of uh, President McKinley, but we're all sort of wondering uh, how you're going to handle this close relationship you have with Senator Lodge. Many people know how close you are, and we're wondering uh, how much uh, influence Lodge is going to have? How are you going to prevent Senator Lodge from 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 having uh, a sort of a carte blanche to the the White House? And and Roosevelt looked at this journalist and said, "No, you don't understand. Lodge does not run me. I run him." And this was sort of a pretty powerful message to send to the to the media. In fact, that a new uh, sheriff was in town, so to speak. There had been a changing of the guard 
And Roosevelt wanted to be pre- was president, and he wanted to communicate the fact that indeed he now occupied the reins of power and didn't want anyone to forget it. So in essence, uh, Roosevelt's time in the White House illustrated the fact that at bottom, Cabot Lodge was a conservative and Roosevelt was not. Yes, I think that's I think that's true. I think they shared similar views, particularly on foreign policy. And Lodge and Roosevelt worked very closely on issues like um, the Russo-Japanese War uh, and and other uh, foreign policy matters, the Alaskan Boundary Treaty. Uh, But in terms of of some domestic matters like the Square Deal and uh, and other things, uh, Roosevelt either went his own way or tended to consult uh, the more progressive individuals in his uh, in his ad- administration he spent a lot of time with Gifford Pinchot he spent a lot of time with James R Garfield and other members of what was referred to as his tennis cabinet uh, in terms of constructing policy and and um when lodge would protest and he protested quite a bit roosevelt didn't always uh, listen to him why did Roosevelt choose Taft to succeed him, and did he ask Cabot Lodge's advice on the matter? You know, I think he just got on very, very well with William Howard Taft. I think Taft and Roosevelt complemented one another very, very well. Taft was 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 much more of the intellectual side of, of Theodore Roosevelt. He was very much an introvert. He was not a political animal. And I think Roosevelt initially believed that he and Taft shared many of the uh, same ideas uh, uh, in terms of, of government and, and, uh, and policy. I don't recall seeing any letters uh, or, or reading anything even about what uh, – about uh, Lodge's views of the idea of of uh, Taft succeeding uh, Roosevelt. I mean, obviously Lodge knew Taft. He met Taft about the same time Theodore Roosevelt did. But he, but but Lodge and Taft didn't spend a great deal of time uh, together. Uh, I think when Roosevelt decided not to run for a second term, uh, Lodge uh, was not surprised. He, he wasn't unhappy uh, about the idea. He was always concerned about Roosevelt's physical uh, state and the fact that he put so much energy into everything he did that he was always worried that Roosevelt was going to endanger himself physically. And so when he chose not to run for president again, he thought that was all right. Um, Lodge thought that uh, Taft was, was fine I don't think he had a, a terribly high opinion of him. Obviously, as Taft's presidency unfolded, that opinion or whatever that opinion was uh, rapidly uh, uh, descended into one of, of great unfavorability. But I don't really know what uh, that that view of, of Taft was in terms of a detailed view of Lodge, nor do I know if he communicated that to, to Roosevelt. Why did Cabot Lodge back Taft in the 1912 presidential election? Well, I think, again, it had to do with a couple of things. I think it had to do with the uh, the future of the Republican Party. 
uh, the fact that Lodge was a devoted soldier, a devoted uh, a member of the GOP. He always wanted to be on the winning side when it came to the Republican Party. And the other thing was he had become very disillusioned uh, with Theodore Roosevelt's positions and the progressive positions that Roosevelt was putting forward, things like direct elections of senators, things like the public could have a referendum if they didn't like a, a decision that a justice had come uh, had uh, had uh, come down with and uh, could ultimately choose to recall that uh, judge if they were unhappy with him, uh, that uh, the idea that the government could seize property uh, at any time through the policy of eminent domain, all of these ideas really upset. Uh, lodge a great deal, and he believed that they indeed violated aspects of the Constitution. Uh, it hurt him terribly uh, that he had to um, support Taft during the 1912 election. He uh, did not uh, support anyone, as he said, during the 1912 primary, though he did arrange for the Massachusetts primary to go Taft's way. But to Lodge's credit, he did tell Roosevelt that their friendship was far too important to destroy it based on any kind of political uh, disagreement. But I think it was terribly difficult uh, for both Roosevelt and Lodge during this period. There was a lot of contentious language. There was a lot of arguing back and forth. Uh, Edith Roosevelt was extremely angry uh, at Henry Cabot Lodge and at Elihu Root. Uh, for essentially turning their back on her husband during this very difficult period and not supporting him uh, when she believed he needed it most. How did the relationship between the two men survive the 1912 contest? Well, it, it did, because I think they generally stayed away uh, from talking politics. They didn't spend a lot of time together. Uh, the The letters which were very prolific from 1884 forward, uh, really slowed down to almost nothing uh, in 1912, where they do exchange some letters, but they're very minimal, very unsubstantive. Uh, and, and I think both uh, men were very upset uh, with one another. And I think Roosevelt was really annoyed with Henry Cabot Lodge. In fact, he gets up at one point at a rally in, in Massachusetts and accuses Lodge, though not by name, of stealing the uh, nomination from him. And uh, during the campaign, presidential campaign, Lodge was going around as a surrogate uh, for William Howard Taft and basically saying that, you know, we are so tired of listening to Theodore Roosevelt complain over and over and over again. It's gotten really old and, and nobody's really interested in, in, in what uh, Roosevelt has to say. So I, I think this was a very difficult time for both for both men. Certainly it must have been for Senator Lodge, who really uh, worshipped uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who really adored him. Uh, and, and I think it must have been extremely uh, difficult for, for Lodge during during this period. But in the end, on, on this particular point, uh, the Republican Party and Republican success was really for Henry Cabot Lodge what it was all about. And he was going to do everything he could to make sure Republicans held on uh, to the presidency uh, and to the Congress. 
How important was the Great War to the friendship once again becoming a strong one? Oh, I think I think it was enormously uh, important. I think both men despised uh, Woodrow Wilson for a lot of different reasons. Most notably, I think that that both Lodge and Roosevelt believed that Rose, that the, Wilson wanted to essentially undo all of the work that Lodge and Roosevelt had done in trying to make the United States a great international power. Uh, both men uh, were very uh, wary uh, of the uh, military position which the United States had found itself in at the time of the Great War, that uh, the uh, United States was completely unprepared, uh, that Wilson seemed to be ignorant of this fact, and both men spent so much of their time talking about preparedness, uh, and uh, finally, uh, the country seemed to begin uh, catching on. Indeed, Wilson uh, began catching on uh, as uh, the war uh, grew more intense, as the U.S. seemed to be uh, drawing closer and closer to becoming involved uh, within it. Uh, but Roosevelt was very passionate uh, about uh, United, the United States being prepared uh, to fight uh, the First World War. He was desperate to uh, serve again uh, on the battlefield. Uh, he was, um, he was uh, frustrated uh, in his ability to uh, not be able to serve, which, uh, which Wilson went out of his way to make sure uh, occurred. Uh, but the First World War really brought Lodge and Roosevelt back together because it gave them a common purpose, uh, a common uh, objective, uh, which was A, uh, revive the military preparedness of the United States and rant against the incompetence of Woodrow Wilson and his administration. Why did, uh, Rose, why did Roosevelt not run for the presidency in 1916? Well, I, I think he realized that he had said a few things about the German-American uh, population uh, that really, uh, I think, essentially uh, eliminated uh, that possibility. Um, I think the Republican Party uh, was not uh, going to uh, allow it. I think that a uh, step outside the party running as a uh, a member of the of the Bull Moose party and subsequently being responsible for the defeat of William Howard Taft by splitting the party in two was really unforgivable uh to many of those uh in the Republican party and I think I think Theodore Roosevelt came to realize that I don't think he wanted uh, to be responsible uh for the same uh, thing that had happened in 1912 as it was. Uh, it didn't matter because Wilson won the presidency anyway with the whole uh, mantra of he kept us out of war. Um, uh, the uh, candidate that year, uh, Justice Hughes, was a weak, a weak candidate, a terrible campaigner. Uh, there was no way that, uh, that uh, the party was going to win, and there was just uh, – Roosevelt had created too many problems uh, for himself to be a successful nominee. There's a photograph in the book of Cabot Lodge um, leaving Roosevelt's um, funeral. 
Would it be true to say that he was distraught at uh, Roosevelt's un unanticipated death? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was brutally. Um, it was. It was maybe one of the worst uh, moments of, of of Lodge's life. I. I think. I don't know if he realized that that Roosevelt uh, was as close to death as he was at the time the two men uh, visited one another for the last time, but but certainly uh, it 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 devastated uh, Lodge uh, to the point that um, when he gives his his uh, eulogy uh, for Roosevelt uh, on the House floor and speaks for. A long period of time, and the things he says, it was just a, really a love letter uh, to Theodore Roosevelt. And after that, I think Lodge, even though he remained in politics, even though he did do some some substantive things, um, I, I don't think his his public life was ever the same again. Would Roosevelt, you believe, have endorsed Cabot Lodge's tactics to defeat Wilson's League of Na Nations concept? I think the problem with the League of Nations for both Roosevelt and Lodge um, was that there was nothing uh, – there were no teeth uh, within the, the League of, of, of Nations charter. There was no sort of peacekeeping or military force like there is today uh, with the United Nations, and, and, and both Lodge and Roosevelt believed it was a paper tiger. I think the other – thing that Lodge so objected to with the League of Nations was that the United States was really not uh, considered uh, to be a, a leader uh, within the League of Nations, that essentially it occupied a position that was pretty subservient or, or equal uh, to those other countries that would be involved in the League. And the other thing was that the, the League of Nations had an enormous – Lodge was concerned that the League would have an enormous amount of power over uh, – American autonomy uh, on a variety of different things, and he had all of his life believed in this idea of America first, uh, that America was the great nation, that America should take the lead in everything, and he simply couldn't support um, the idea of the League as it, was, uh, as it was constructed or as it was viewed by Woodrow Wilson. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, I think uh, that both men realized, and I think this is something for our own time, that friendship is more important than politics, that we can disagree over issues, we can disagree over ideas, but that doesn't have to make us disagreeable individually, that we can still have a conversation uh, about our differences and still remain good friends in the process. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo, and you've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much. Thanks, Charles. I appreciate the time. Have a wonderful day.